cool. Um, thanks for doing this. I feel like I've dug myself a little bit of a hole because I'm not uh, really an issue person. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to try. Okay. Yeah. So you, you dug a hole and you jumped in and you're over your head. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Whenever Grandma would greet me, she'd say, Hey, Anjadoo. Hey, skinny cuplink. Because that's what I was, a skinny cuplink. I was a rail. I could have been a beanpole, except I wasn't particularly tall. Just skinny in the way that my doctor always urged me to bulk up, try to eat more. But he didn't understand how often I'd devour a 12-inch tuna salad submarine sandwich, six large chocolate chip cookies, and an entire canister of Pringles after school. Are you anorexic? The more uninhibited would ask, because scrawny teenage girls are automatically assumed to be counting calories, purging, preening, obsessed with the delusion of an imperfect appearance. All I was counting were pounds, 90 of them total. My doctor wanted me to have 15 more, but hey, if I could get 40 more pounds... Maybe I would become slightly voluptuous. But even if I ate 1,500 deep-fried cheese sauce-dipped peanut butter stuffed dumplings with beef and lard, (laughs) I would remain a waif, someone who appeared to subsist only upon prayer and the daily ingestion of a communion wafer. The most I ever got out of my family, Doc, were two ideas. I am allergic to milk and I have IBS. IBS is what regular doctors call Irritable bowel syndrome. But it is the same thing as IDK syndrome. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe just try a little bran toast and a banana in the morning. My doctor didn't have an idea how to help me. I was a lethargic kid with a bouquet of undiagnosed symptoms. When I became an adult... 
These symptoms multiplied and worsened. I'm not going to get into all of that. I have a larger point. A heavy, subtle force cloud that moved in to obscure my spiritual vision. A distrust of the mainstream. A distrust of authority. A distrust of the idea that my body can be anything at all like another human body. I am not wrong. And I am not right. After working with one normal Western allopathic family doctor for the duration of my childhood, I doubted heavily that any doctor of that variety could help me, so I left the promise of insurance coverage and tried a lot of things. Some helpful, some hurtful, and some were just straight-up quackery. Here are some of the things I've succumbed to trying. Some that I'm still doing today, but mostly, I am not. Nutritional supplements, thyroid medication, acupuncture, prayer, meditation, integrative medicine, nutritionists, yoga, yoga therapy, emotional freedom technique, a gluten-free diet, veganism, raw foods, food sensitivity testing, a rotation diet, juicing, herbal tea, homeopathic tinctures, kongi, goat whey, bone broth, astrology, psychics, tarot, past life regression sessions, fermented vegetables, kombucha, detoxification, chewing 60 times before swallowing, earthing, purple rice powder, alkalizing, reiki, foot massage, blood microscopy, dry brushing, ghee, low-dose naltrexone, dance, chanting, chanting magic spells, spells positive thinking, thinking muscle, muscle testing, testing, raw milk, a paleo diet, water filters, IV infusions, chelation therapy, dowsing, Parasite-killing tea, sleep hygiene, an earlier bedtime, avoiding fluoride, organic only, stainless steel, glass and clay only, eating cilantro with my every meal, essential oils, oil diffusers, CBD oil, oil switching, hand mudras, Buddhist retreat centers, Soaking my beans, soaking my nuts, soaking my grains, sprouting, seed cycling with the moon phases, eating only cooked foods, neti pots, ear candling, on-demand sessions, air purifiers, ingesting, bentonite clay, food diaries, tree hugging, 
vision boards, manifestation, law of attraction, Joseph Campbell, Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, the life of Pi, eat, pray, love, what the bleep do we know, the way of the peaceful warrior, calling upon angels, calling upon ancestors, calling upon a universal God, calling upon specific gods and goddesses, Calling upon Mary and the saints. Calling upon my higher self. Calling upon my future self. Calling upon my more successful parallel universe selves. I'm not cured. I'm still struggling. Some things are more helpful than others. Recently, I've been discovering weightlifting and exercise to be helpful with my energy and mood. Now, who would have ever have guessed exercise to be helpful? But honestly, I did have an alternative doctor tell me at one time to be very cautious with any sort of exercise. The stranger the prescription the more inclined I have been to try it because I've been desperate for a cure. A state of desperation opened me up to the woo-woo con artist hole. It compromised my ability to think clearly. Long before I ever tried lifting barbells, I started attending meetings for raw milk drinkers and was handed some anti-vaccination pamphlets. While I am no longer inclined to embrace anti-vaccination philosophy, I still get emails from that group, and more so than ever in the midst of a global pandemic. I should just read you one of the emails. In fact, that's what this episode is going to consist of. A reading aloud of one vaccination-phobic email interspersed by the reactions of Dr. Michelle Kosmalski, a regular family doctor whose authority I have learned to trust. Now here's a little background about Dr. Kosmalski so that you know she's legit. So as we said, I'm Michelle Kosmalski. I have an MD background. I studied at University of Wisconsin in Madison, School of Medicine and Public Health. I graduated in 2013. So part of our medical training, a lot of it is how to think critically and apply evidence-based medicine. So that's a big part of my background was what does the evidence say, which we find evidence through trials and, and studies done. The other thing before medical school, I did research in an immunology lab. So I had done some graduate level courses in immunology prior to medical training as well. So that definitely boosted my knowledge of the immune system in general. And I have one published paper from that research that I did prior. So you can Google me and find that published paper as well. I was part of a team that was working on BCG, which is tuberculosis in an animal model. We would look at infecting the brains of mice with the animal form of tuberculosis, we were doing multiple sclerosis research. And if you overlay 
a world map of where the prevalence of multiple sclerosis, an autoimmune disorder, is found. It's a mirror reflection of the areas that's high with tuberculosis. So there's some interaction with people that get tuberculosis don't get this autoimmune disorder, multiple sclerosis. That's why we were looking at the tuberculosis infection, because it does something with our immune system that is almost protective for getting an autoimmune disorder. But yeah, so I'm a family doctor. I work at Ascension Gateway Medical Clinic in West Dallas, but I will say that everything that I talk about today with you represents my own views. I'm not representing anything at the corporate or organizational level. I asked my friend Peter Donalds, also known as Charles Bursell in the radio world, to read the email aloud for us. Minor impact. Vaccine manufacturers claim that COVID-19 vaccines are 95% effective, but the FDA is allowing companies to define effectiveness as prevention of mild symptoms. The studies are not designed to detect a reduction in outcomes such as severe illness, hospitalization, or death. For individuals who develop severe symptoms, the vaccine is not a remedy. Instead, nutritional and oxidative support can help keep the illness from going into overdrive. Yes, the very last line of that, nutritional oxidative support can help keep illness from going into overdrive. I think it's important to just have a sense of what happens to someone with COVID and what do we know so far, I guess, because we don't know everything about COVID. But it is believed that a lot of the damage, so to say, from COVID isn't the virus itself. It's just the complications that the virus creates. They've looked at it and it seems to be that it's our own immune systems that just gets so ramped up by the virus that it goes into overdrive and it doesn't calm itself down. It's kind of like you get a a common cold virus, right? But instead it decides that this is a life and death kind of a thing. And so every part of your immune system is activated, like an overreaction. So the very first thing that I looked up, there's somebody behind this (laughs) that wants nutritional and oxidative support. And it makes sense that you said that this company that wrote this, their focus is like nutrition. And I looked at the company itself too, but I was thinking, okay, if things like blueberries, those are antioxidants or other fruit, if that would be enough, don't you think we would do that to save all these people dying from it? If we just had to feed people blueberries and have their nutrition be better? That's kind of the oversimplification. And I think it's way too early to tell whether or not any study on, I don't even think there is a study that could tell us anything about nutrition at this point, because it's just way too early in the disease. That was just the point to that that one sentence there. Now they talk about effectiveness and this was actually a very interesting point that this article did make. How do we define effectiveness? What means something's effective? And they're talking about the prevention of mild symptoms as being effective, which I think makes sense. If you're trying to say that something works, so to say, you wanna prevent symptoms. Why are we defining it as preventing mild symptoms when we're worried about bad symptoms? I think, It's because initially the trials on these or the studies was just whoever wanted to take the vaccine. They weren't going to be giving a vaccine that could be potentially harmful to somebody that's in a really severe state. I also looked into the CDC website about just the flu vaccine because even effectiveness on flu vaccine doesn't look at deaths. Like, does it prevent death? When you look at good quality trials, the best ones are what we call a randomized controlled trial, which means that we 
can sort people into different groups that match pretty much the same, like the same number of smokers or not, just have a very diverse group of people so that we're not biased to limiting only people that weren't smokers were in one group. You know, we want everything to be very randomized where we can control what group gets the placebo and one group gets the treatment. And it's even better if both the researchers and the people, the participants don't know which group they're in. That's always the best because then there's, again, less level of biases. But unfortunately, a lot of the vaccine trials, including the COVID one, I would imagine, you can't do that because a lot of trials, once you find or you think you have something that can help a lot of people, it's not considered ethical to give people a placebo if we know that there's their life on the line and that they might actually benefit from getting the treatment. What that means is we can't do randomized controlled trials. We have to do what's called observational trials, which means we just give it to people and just observe what happens. But there's a lot more chance that there's biases because there's biases on who even will sign up for that kind of a trial. You're not getting a good representation of the general population with it. So there's limitations in just how we can design it, which are mostly observational studies. We can never get basically that outcome that we're looking for, which is like, does it decrease deaths? Does it decrease severe symptoms? I think a reasonable person can think though, if this is preventing someone from getting mild symptoms, it's probably preventing them from spreading it as much to people that might get severe symptoms and in that way, preventing deaths. I wouldn't put so much emphasis on how they define the effectiveness because I feel like if we did prevent the mild symptoms, all those other ones would be prevented, hopefully as well. It's hard. A lot of times the discussion that a lot of the either pro or against vaccine stances go with is very, it's hard for a common person without a background in immunology to understand the language that's used a lot of times. A similar thing is kind of like legalese, right? They use a lot of words that have a meaning into common people, but then it means something very different in legal. So it's, it's similar to that, where there's things that sound very straightforward or, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's very linear. But if you don't have the background, you don't see the, the questions behind it or the holes in the logic. Expect adverse reactions. Participants in every COVID-19 vaccine trial have reported adverse reactions, including high fever, chills, muscle pains, and headaches. Some have even reported severe reactions that required hospitalization and invasive treatment. According to the FDA, potential long-term effects may include Guillain-Barre syndrome, brain swelling, muscle weakness and paralysis, convulsions and seizures, stroke, narcolepsy, shock, heart attack, autoimmune disease, arthritis, and joint pain, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, and death. Some UK health workers have experienced anaphylactic shock after receiving one dose of the approved vaccine. The first part about adverse reactions that are reported in every vaccine trial, high fever, chills, muscle pains, and headaches. So it sounds like that no matter what the trial had, they did have some sort of report of adverse reactions. I think that this is where it's important to, when you look at the studies, to know is it statistically significant? Statistically significant is a very <laughs> complicated thing, but it's basically like when you have the placebo group and you have the treatment group, 
you want to see how many people in both of those reported the same things. How many that got a placebo said, yeah, I got chills and high fever and muscle pains and headaches. Because if there was way more in the treatment group, that's when we say, oh, it's statistically significant. It's more than just what could have happened at random or due to a, like the placebo effect. That first line seems completely reasonable. Yeah, I'm sure that they all reported some level of that. I mean, most vaccines you can get that with high fevers, chills. That's a, those are common symptoms for your body building up immunity to something. We did something to your body that's causing it to build up an antibody, right? Um, the severe reactions I thought was very interesting because some of these, I don't think that some of these are even accurate. Like narcolepsy, my understanding of narcolepsy is it's a chronic disease. I've never heard of it being caused by any virus or vaccine. And that's where people just fall asleep without any trigger. The Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's true. That one's been a very common one, actually, that I've looked at quite a bit because that's a pretty severe neurologic syndrome that can be chronic. What I found interesting, and I looked at the report from the Pfizer report that he actually lists in here, and they found that people that got placebo had Guillain-Barre as well. Yeah, so you it begs the question of, there was, I think, two people that got the vaccine and one person that did not get the vaccine got the placebo that got Guillain-Barre. So it does question whether or not that is just what would generally happen in the population without whether or not they got the vaccine. Guillain-Barre, any virus can cause that. COVID could cause that. And when they did actually look at it, the Guillain-Barre that was in the trials was not statistically significant. So they did not see it so much more in the treatment group the people that got the vaccine. So that one I'm less worried about as like a doctor. So I'd say, I'm not sure the difference between convulsions and seizures. They're the same thing. And then the other ones too, the shock, heart attack, autoimmune disease. It's just hard to know. All the studies have been too early to say these. They are talking about potential long-term effects. There's no long-term data. So could any of these cause any of that? Sure, there could be. It just, we need more long-term data to, to rule it out, you know. Anaphylactic level yeah. allergies. What should people do with that? Yes, that is a really good question. They don't know if that's related to the vaccine or not. So I would probably do it case by case on whether or not I would actually recommend them get the vaccine for my own patients. If you have an underlying condition of anaphylaxis with something else, I believe one of those nurses had an allergy to like a nut or something like that. Definitely, I would be very cautious with anyone that carries around an EpiPen <laughs> on the regular basis because they may go into anaphylaxis from it. I think that that's a reasonable concern and probably should talk to the doctor a bit more about pros and cons of doing the vaccine with that and, and weighing out the person's risk for a very severe disease. Won't prevent COVID-19. An FDA Pfizer briefing paper published December 10, 2020, revealed 43% more suspected cases of COVID-19 in the vaccinated group than in the placebo group within seven days of vaccination. Wait, what? This one I really looked into. 43% more suspected cases of COVID-19 in the vaccinated group compared to placebo within seven days of a vaccine. That in of itself is true. I looked at the reference that he said, 43% more suspected cases in the vaccinated group than in the placebo. But he did kind of twist 
<laughs> it's on the wording there. Because what was actually reported wasn't 43%. They didn't say that. That was him deducing from the numbers that were put out. This is where, again, having a background in immunology is very important. And it has to do with this seven days of vaccine. Suspected as a keyword. These are cases of people reporting symptoms, again, which can be biased too, but it sounded like these were symptoms that sounded like COVID, but they were not confirmed. These were not laboratory confirmed. These people did not have a positive blood test that said, yes, they did have COVID, but they're suspected to have had it. And this was within seven days of a vaccine. So a thing that's important to know is how does our body respond? Like what are the antibody responses when we get a vaccine? This is an example of a vaccine that is given called tetanus and diphtheria, the tetanus vaccine that we give. And it's two doses that's given because it's similar to the COVID vaccine in that it also requires two doses, right? The amount of antibody is on the y-axis. So that's at this point in our Zoom interview, Dr. Kozmalski shared her screen with me so that I could see a chart with a lot of numbers and science on it. And it just doesn't translate well to the audio world of the podcast. But she made some really good points and ultimately... I understood by looking at it why we need to get two vaccinations rather than one in the case of COVID because our immune system needs to fight it twice and within a certain window, otherwise it doesn't work. Which means that it's not like you get the vaccine and you walk out of the office and you say, wow, I can now get completely exposed to diphtheria or tetanus and I will be completely covered because it takes a while for your body to be stimulated. The vaccine just stimulates your immune system to develop these antibodies to be able to fight off the virus, right? Okay, so the first time you get a vaccine, there's an initial lag period and that's when IgM is produced initially. Right away, you get an IgM response, which is a more of, think of that more of a weaker antibody response, but it's the first one. So that if you did get exposed when the IgM was high, that would give you some immune protection right there. But the long-term, long-term antibody that gives us the most immune protection over the course of even our lifetime for some diseases is the IgG. So it's important to have the IgM, but then it be, because that covers us until the IgG is sufficient. That is just kind of what I wanted to give you a background on for immunology purposes. So back to the guy's point or the article's point, they talk about how so many more people, 43% more suspected cases of COVID in the vaccinated group than the placebo within a seven day period from the vaccine. They're talking about the first vaccine that was given. And within seven days, I wouldn't, we know just based on what I showed you there on that graph, that it takes two to four weeks to see a response. So I'm not really sure what the point is with that. Of course, you're not, you have no coverage at seven days. Um, you're still in that like period where your body's trying to build up the immunity.
Like initially you would read that and think, oh my gosh, that does, that sounds crazy. Like why would, that sounds like it's not effective. It sounds like it's not even doing anything, right? Because so many more people that got the vaccine got COVID suspected symptoms. If you didn't know that you need that time lag, the timing is important to be able, like you see on that graph, you have to get it before both of the antibodies are down so that you get some continued immunity. No liability. COVID-19 vaccine manufacturers will be protected from all liability. If you are injured, you cannot sue. Manufacturers will have complete indemnity, even though all previous attempts at creating coronavirus vaccines caused harm and never advanced to regulatory approval. <laughs> That's always true. Liability, this, this extends, there's different laws that protect people that are trying to help. And this extends for me as a family doctor. If I pull over, if I see that there's someone that was in a horrible accident on the side of the road and I did something to try that I thought was in good faith trying to help the person, but was outside of my scope of practice. I'm protected. That's called the Good Samaritan Law. Let's say that a surgeon should have known not to do something, but I didn't know that as a family doctor and I tried to help the person and it caused harm or they died or something like that. I'm actually protected from liability because it's outside of what I normally, I don't, I'm not a trauma surgeon, so I don't see people in that kind of a thing. No one's trying to create a vaccine just to kill off more people. I think in general, most people that go into this kind of, even including the pharmaceuticals, which I have a lot to say about that. I don't think that they're trying to be malicious. We have a deadly virus on our hands that are killing more people than 9-11 in a day. So everyone's racing to, to develop something that seems to not be very harmful for many people to hopefully protect people. You basically would have to prove that they knowingly administered something that they knew they had lots of research behind that caused very major harm. What studies they've done on the vaccines, Guillain-Barre and some of those other syndromes that they talked about earlier that seem to not be statistically significant. They're obviously not just going to put a vaccine out there and say, okay, well, wash our hands, we're done, we did our job. They're going to continue to follow people and follow symptoms. And if it does seem like wow, horrible things happen, I'm sure they will pull it. There's always a review to continue to stay on the market as well. It's very hard in a medical system in general to prove liability. <laughs> you can always sue. It's whether or not you will win, <laughs> right? You have to prove that they knowingly did something harmful. Will not end restrictive measures. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health acknowledges that the vaccines may prevent symptoms, but will not block spread of the virus. So vaccine recipients will still need to wear masks, practice social distancing, and avoid crowds. Vaccines never end restrictive measures. I mean, just because we get the flu vaccine each year doesn't mean that we don't have to wash our hands, we can sneeze in everyone's faces. We know it's not 100%, no vaccines 100%. We're talking about a disease that's it's killing people. But this is just another tool in the tool belt. <laughs> the vaccine is just another tool, which is a big tool, but it's also still important to wear masks and to avoid social contact until the cases are that much further down. I think why Fauci and the NIH 
are trying to say like still have to do all those other things is because what you don't want to happen is the opposite where people get vaccinated thinking I'm completely protected and I can't pass this on and I can't get it. Then inevitably there's still a lot of cases of COVID and hopefully you still think like, well, this may protect me so that I can lessen the spread of it. But I still would think that everyone should consider themselves still able to get the virus and still able to spread it to people that might not survive from it. It's very variable, I think, as far as timing measures, and it depends on the amount of vaccine that we get. I know that at our clinic, we're considered 10th tier as a primary care doctor, even though I see patients. I mean, I'm not supposed to be seeing patients with symptoms that sound like COVID, but people slip through cracks of screening questions, or they just outright say no to the screening questions because they want to see their doctor. <laughs> and then inevitably I see people <laughs> that have COVID. But that being said, we're consi- we will probably get it at the same time as the general population. As a family doctor in a clinic, that's not primarily like seeing COVID patients. So as far as people that are immunocompromised, I think that will depend. They may be able to get it faster, I would say, through like specialty clinics like rheumatology. I wonder if they will get the vaccines delivered to their clinic first. I don't know, but that might be a route that they can get it before the general population. I think right now the people that are getting it at least through our system are like the frontline workers in the ICU and the COVID floors and things like that. And anyone in congregate settings like nursing homes and and things like that, that are really high risk to spread very quickly. But I think as far as immune compromise goes, that's a little bit harder to piece out um, where you draw that line of if someone has an autoimmune disorder like, I don't know, Crohn's disease or something like that, but they're well managed <laughs> or they aren't on immunosuppressants or they are on immunosuppressants, those are going to be a little bit trickier, I think, to piece out when, when and how fit that in. So I think the hope is that we'll pretty much offer it as fast as we can to the general public so everyone will pretty much be getting it around the same time not necessary. According to the CDC's current best estimate, the infection fatality rate, IFR, for COVID-19 is less than 1% for people age 69 and younger, including a 0.003% IFR for children and adolescents. Oh, this one I kind of loved. This one, again, is one of those where it sounds very, it is true, covid Fatality, so that's deaths from COVID, is less than 1% for people 69 and younger. That is true because most people that are 69 and younger are considered lower risk. We know from what we know about COVID already is that children transmit it less and they get infected less frequent than adults. So those two things make sense. But the thing that I I don't like about this is that even though that they're not going to die from it, they still can spread it to other people. And that's what we're trying to avoid because it's the people that are above 69 or just very various chronic diseases that put those patients at super high risk that they're more likely to die from it. So I wouldn't say it's not necessary for people to get it, including those under 69, because the necessity isn't because they're going to die from it. It's more that they're going to pass it on to someone who will. And I do want to be clear, the, the vaccine we don't have any data yet on kids and adolescents. And that's why actually I didn't mention this, but back up where he talks about adverse reactions and he said multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, they haven't even studied the vaccine 
for kids yet. So there's no studies on it. So I don't know where he got that information actually from the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children because there's been no studies yet. They are starting to look at studies for getting the kids and adolescents data about a vaccine. And, and obviously they do want to develop a vaccine that's safe for kids and adolescents as well. Currently it's only approved for 16 and older. So it's only for adults at the moment. And that really is because, again, it goes actually to this point that he says right here where it is much less fatal for kids. And so that's why there's never really been a focus. The focus was trying to protect the older folks and get a vaccine for adults first because the kids spread it less than adults do. There's no approved children or adolescent vaccine, only 16 and above. I would not say not necessary. <laughs> I would say definitely necessary because somebody's giving it to the people that are dying. <laughs> Could make you sterile. Two prominent doctors, including the ex-head of Pfizer's respiratory research, warn that COVID-19 vaccines contain a spike protein called syncytin-1, vital for the formation of the placenta. If the vaccine triggers an immune response to this protein, then female infertility, miscarriage, or birth defects could result. Yeah, this one... This one's interesting. <laughs> I, initially, when they talk about most things making people sterile, I think of men. <laughs> Just go to like, oh, they're, they're trying to scare the men into not taking something because they're going to get erectile dysfunction. This one, I have to say, is outside of like my area of expertise as far as this spike in a protein that's vital for formation of the placenta. Again, it's just too early to call that. If the vaccine contains a spike protein that's vital for the formation of the placenta. I don't know like how that leads to infertility. I guess they're saying here that it triggers an immune response to the protein. And so all this other bad stuff, female infertility and miscarriage and birth defects could result, but I don't know. It seems like there's too many dots being connected by that. I think we'd have to do more research as far as what it actually happens with a spike in that protein. What do you think of all of this? It oversimplifies things. It really takes talking to an expert in those areas to really understand the risks, because there are risks. I'm not going to deny that there are risks for everything that we do. There's a risk. But really to understand that and try to make, help people to make the decision for them, because every person is different as far as risk for disease, risk for death, risk for spreading to other people that would die, all those things take into account. What do you think the goal is with this email? Pointedly, it's just trying to get people to question, I think, the vaccine. It says here, COVID vaccine is important talking points. Please share with your family and friends. When they say talking points, I feel like it already takes the stance of it's they're against it. 
<laughs> and here's why. Because this is like, well, this is what you should tell people that say you should get it. And then they go into more and more like not necessary and they get a little bit more fatalistic, right? Like could make you sterile. Now it's more of a threatening tone. Overall, it's just a very firm stance of, of against it and should look into other ways that you can support your immune system that I don't think have been supported in evidence, at least. You always have to ask yourself, who is the person or the foundation? What are their goals and what is their mission? It made a lot of sense after looking at their website. They're into this nutritional and oxidative support. Like as far as, in general, the COVID vaccine, some people should get it, and I think some people probably should not get it. But it's a case-by-case -case situation that you should talk over with your doctor. If you made a talking points about the COVID-19 <laughs> virus, what things would you suggest people talk about? I would definitely think if you were going to come up with a report, you definitely want to talk about the adverse reactions is important. What do we know right now from the studies and how severe? I always like numbers as far as how many people really had all that, the statistical significance. What are the chances that this is more than just random chance that somebody got a symptom? A lot of our medications, you look at it, I mean, including over-the-counter ibuprofen, Tylenol, the adverse effects that people report are a lot. And I think a focus on who would probably not be a candidate for the vaccine, where the risks would outweigh the benefit for that person. Those would be very important talking measures. I think a lot of the stuff that we question are stuff that borders moral or ethical. I think those are always the hardest in medicine, hardest for doctors for sure to grapple with. It's hard because some of these also come down to politics, right? It does get very politicized. Despite what people think, resources are not infinite here. The U.S. already has a system to limit access because we think like, oh, we have the world's best medicine. But when you look at who gets access to treatments, it's very different. There's a big discrepancy. We're already prioritizing who gets treatment and who doesn't. It's just very covert because <laughs> there's nothing outright that says, oh, you're going to get treatment for this or you're not going to get treatment for that. It's much more based on our socioeconomic status and where we live, how many doctors are in that area. It's more of an invisible rationing of resources. I see, unfortunately, too many times people, they don't have insurance or they don't have the right insurance insurance that doesn't pay enough, where they are denied services and care that if they had better insurance that would pay physicians more, that they would get better treatment or different treatment at least. There's a lot more questioning that should be done about that. Medicine is advancing very rapidly. So there is a lot of things that we now offer patients but all come with risk. There's never a procedure or anything that we do that's completely risk-free. How much do you risk? For example, if you have a brain aneurysm, that is a weakness in the wall of the artery and arteries supply our brain with oxygen and nutrients. And so if that ruptures, usually it's fatal or you have a stroke. And so now medicine's advanced enough where you can put in a coil to help stabilize that wall. But just going in to put in a coil is very risky you can have a stroke right then and there and be done. We can't tell you what to do. We can just give you the data <laughs> on how many times does that happen? How many people does that happen to? What are your chances that it might rupture? And then you decide. I think most people want to do whatever they can to protect their loved ones. And, they, and no one wants to cause death to someone. <laughs> Trying to balance out what are the risks of passing it on versus you yourself getting sick as well. Because it's hard to say. We don't know... It, this this disease is unlike any other. We have not seen anything like this where it is very, it's very unpredictable. 
how afraid are you that a significant portion of the population won't get vaccinated? I think that probably many people will choose not to be vaccinated. <laughs> I'm worried about that because we need to have a certain level of people that either A, already had the virus, um, so they have some level of immunity to it, although we still don't know as far as getting it again, right? Getting it a second time around. Definitely if it mutates, you can get it for sure. We need to have a certain level of either people that have gotten it and gotten over it, so they're no longer gonna pass it along to people and or, enough people get the vaccine that you don't need everyone in a population to get the vaccine. There's something called herd immunity, where if there's enough people with immunity, you actually are protecting and covering some of those people that didn't get it. If I'm remembering right from medical school, it's around 80%, 80% of the population either elect to get it, to get that herd immunity, which is a lot. <laughs> I'm worried that there'll be a lot of people that don't want it for a variety of reasons. Ugh. reported adverse effects versus knowing that there's a virus that can kill people, in, yourself included, a, a normal, healthy person that's a young adult. You know, you're in that category too, whether you like it or not, or even scarier, I think to most people, including myself, is long-term disability. There's a lot of data that the younger people, you know, in their 30s, 40s, they get strokes. Now, how would you like to have a stroke complication for the rest of your life? That's even worse than death for quite a few people, frankly. But yeah, so I'm, I am worried that people aren't taking it seriously enough. There's a lot of people dying from it, a lot of people having a lot of complication from it. That's the email, and that's the interview. Now, if you happen to be an anti-vaccination conspiracy theorist who has listened this far and are still waiting for me to pledge my allegiance to Big Pharma because they just gave me a billion dollars, I'll hush-hush to do this scrappy but let's face it, I'm a one-woman production. I record, I edit. It's, it's crappy. It's a crappy production quality podcast. If you've been waiting this long to hear me um, pledge my allegiance to Big Pharma, you just aren't going to hear me do that. Not because I am bought out, but because I have my own agenda. My agenda is that I want people to put a little more trust in authority when it comes to this public health crisis. One of the reasons is yesterday, my father-in-law, Tim, died of COVID-19. Typically, when someone dies, the next question people ask is, how old were they? Well, Tim was 80 years old. Yes, he had a long, full life, but that doesn't justify his death, and it doesn't justify the deaths of anyone else who has died of COVID-19. 
Whenever we lose our elders, we lose life mentors and our own history. This pandemic is mass killing our knowledge keepers. The Yodas who have memories of other difficult times and who could best help us respond to our plethora of current struggles. Please don't spread it. Don't get it. Please don't be a mask hole. Even if you don't care about the virus, somebody else does. When Tim entered assisted living right before the pandemic, we thought he was going to be very safe there. He'd be getting regular meals, and if he fell or wasn't feeling good, someone would arrive to help him right away. But now assisted living centers, nursing homes, homeless shelters, and prisons have twisted, becoming the most hazardous of spaces. Receiving care has become lethal. And no matter a person's place, age, or health status, it's a death and disability lottery every time someone catches this virus. This needs to end. Previously, I've opted out of getting the flu shot many times for fear of mercury. I never even looked into the science of that until today. According to the FDA's website, the amount of mercury in a flu shot is roughly the same amount of elemental mercury contained in a three-ounce can of tuna fish. Now, to be honest, I no longer eat tuna precisely because of the mercury in it and also the overfishing crisis. And I might not even get a flu shot every year in the future. However, I am definitely going to get the COVID-19 vaccination as soon as possible. I'm going to get the shot for you and for me and Tim and all the people who have died from this and all the more people who will if we don't vaccinate and all the people who have to live the rest of their lives with bodies permanently altered by the damages of COVID-19. give all those footnotes with links. Yes. So just at random, I clicked on one of them. This whole process took me about 30 seconds. <laughs> huh? Clicked on one of them, found the author, 
Googled him, found out within 20 seconds, he's a nut job. He's an outlier criticized by everyone else in his field. And this was one click randomly. <laughs> People have to realize it's really not that hard. It's pretty easy and it's pretty quick to do a little fact checking on anything that sounds fishy. And that's one of the first thoughts I had when you sent this email was, so you can do science backwards. You can start with your conclusion and then find the evidence to back it up rather than the way science is supposed to happen. <laughs> you gather evidence and then you form a conclusion. It's so easy these days. They already have an idea in their head and then they can just find evidence to back them up. It's out there. You're always gonna find one crackpot. It's easy. You read this and you go, holy hell. <laughs> You know, I didn't think of that. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's how they get you. They're operating on this nugget of truth. It really does ring true, but the conclusions they come to and the avenues they go down are so screwy that it takes a little research to find out, oh, right, I see, this is crazy. But they're starting with that nugget of truth and that, it gets you. It really pulls you in. These people here in the, in the email you sent me, they're dealing with very hard science. I don't mess with hard science at all. I bow to the experts with the appropriate amount of skepticism, but still science is all about consensus. And if they've been able to reach a consensus. What would you consider soft science? Economics for sure. The very fact that you can have a conservative economist and a liberal economist mm. tells you right there. I mean, you can't have a conservative biologist or a liberal biologist. If you do, they're the outliers I was talking about. What do you think the motive is for these people who are putting out this misinformation? <laughs> well, that gets us into another soft science. This one actually is debatable, but a lot of people don't really trust psychology. <laughs> I'm not sure where I stand on that. I won't offer an opinion right now. The whole kind of bandwagon jumping, which is a logical fallacy. Well, everybody else believes it, so I will. It's kind of the other side of that coin. Well, there's this small elite group of people who really know the truth. And I'm gonna join them because that's gonna make me feel special. It's the Fox News model of success. I like being a creative person. I like being an artist. I like feeling kind of superior to the people who don't think as deeply as I do, you know? <laughs> I, I'm guilty of that in my own way. Dr. Michelle Kosmalski for your interview and considerations. And thank you to Charles Bursell for your reading of the email. Thank you to the Weston A. Price Foundation for the paranoia you sent me in my email. Music for this show is by my brother, Anton Seeger.
Two prominent doctors, including the ex-head of Pfizer's respiratory research, warned that COVID-19 vaccines contain a spike protein called syncytin-1, vital for the formation of the placenta. If the vaccine triggers an immune response to this protein, then female infertility, miscarriage, or birth certificate... <laughs> <laughs> <If the va> <laughs> 